All right. Well, welcome back. Ladies, it's great to be with you again. And you either had a wonderful break or you had a wonderful time serving at the Shepherds Conference. The numbers for this conference, I believe, were 4,500 men, apparently, and around 900 volunteers from church. And as usual, it was a time of incredible encouragement to the pastors who came from all over the world to be fed themselves and to be revitalized for the task at hand. Pastoring a congregation is no easy endeavor, and being a pastor's wife is not an easy endeavor either. I know that it is a blessing and a joy for these men, but it certainly has its challenges, especially in the last couple of years with all the shakeups that there have been in churches, because we know too that people can be demanding and rude. They can blame the pastor for everything that goes wrong in the church. They can be divisive and challenging and hostile. Just like the Israelites in their response to their leadership. We saw that this week, didn't we? So here we are back in our story. We're following the Israelites as they travel to the place God has chosen for them and promised to give them as an inheritance. And we left them in chapter 10. Remember that? Obedient and traveling to where God was going to lead them. Now, if we were watching a movie, this would be the point where we would be approaching the climax of the story. The character, which in our case is collective Israel, right, has come through all of these obstacles, and they are ready. They're going to the promised land. They're going to fight their epic battle. They're going to win and take it. But in this story... Instead of taking the land, a journey that should have only taken weeks took just under 40 years. So our major theme, as you can see in our outline, is disobedience. But keep in mind, as a foil to that, that God is always at work with his plan to bless his people in spite of their rebellion. And that should always be in our mind, that nothing can thwart him. If he says it will come to pass, it will come to pass. And so though the outline reflects disobedience throughout, and subsequent judgment, God's mercy is always present, as is his perfect sovereign plan. So disobedience displayed in complaints and dissensions, and that will be chapters 11 and 12, and you can open your Bibles to Numbers 11 if you haven't yet done that. So my little subtitle is, The People Complain. That's the title. In the beginning of our semester, if you remember, Paul Twist led us through an overview of the Pentateuch, and he was giving all the major highlights of the books. I've never heard him talk so fast. And by the time, right, he got to numbers, I think he was running out of time, and he just said, numbers, stop complaining. And then maybe he said one other sentence, and he was on to Deuteronomy. So if nothing else, we can remember, numbers, stop complaining. So if no time has passed from chapter 10 when they departed the mountain to our opening complaint in Numbers 11, it's only been three days. So let's read that together, 11.1. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord had heard it and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. So God was angry because of what had happened, and he consumed some of them. Moses interceded, prayed, and God relented. 
Then starting in verse four, it says, now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. The mixed multitude or mixed company were the native Egyptians or other peoples, they were just the non-Israelites, who left Egypt with them in the Exodus. And the mixed multitude or rabble is the translation of this unusual word, and it occurs only once in the Hebrew Bible. And this is it. That's it. I think it was a good idea on those people's parts to go along with the Israelites. But they become, as listed in this passage, a type of instigator. A few factious, discontented, and ill-natured people can cause a lot of harm. The people complained about the manna, not having meat and fish and cucumbers and melons, etc., things they enjoyed in Egypt while they were miserable as slaves. One commentator says, old miseries are so easily reborn as rosy memories when deeper discontent needs to be justified. I'll read that again. Old miseries are so easily reborn as rosy memories when deeper discontent needs to be justified. We get very creative when we want to make excuses for why we have a right to be angry or discontent, don't we? And who complains about eating pastries every day? I could live on bread and water, right? And you'll notice in verse 10, weeping was throughout the families and everyone at the door of his tent. The anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. And Moses was upset too. And he says to God, the burden is too much. Essentially, these are your people. How am I supposed to deal with them? And then the best, Numbers 11, 14, and 15. I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. I have a special affinity for the characters in the Bible that have at one time or another bemoaned their existence. Perhaps it appeals to my dramatic side, but there's just something emotionally satisfying when they say, kill me now, I can't go on. I'd rather be in glory. Jeremiah, Elijah, Jonah, Job, all thought it might be better to leave the earthly tent sooner rather than later. So with Moses, though, ladies, you see the limitations of a human mediator right? He's coming to his wit's end. And this makes me ever grateful for 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is perfect. Amen. And he tirelessly and without complaint advocates for us in the throne room. So I just love that, that we can leave the human mediators behind because God in Jesus Christ has fulfilled that. So God's answer to Moses' dilemma is that he provides help by appointing elders to assist him in the task. So read with me uh, after that piece, Numbers 11, 18 through 20. Then you shall say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two days, not five days, nor 10 days, nor 20 
days, but for a whole month, and who does not love this line, until it comes out of your nostrils, and it becomes loathsome to you, because you have despised the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? So although the Lord gave Moses help by appointing elders, he still gave the people a consequence for distrusting and despising, or the other word is rejecting him. When it says the people wept in his his hearing, they were bewailing and crying and lamenting. So it was a very loud protest. (laughs) Then Moses says in verse 21, basically, how can you feed all these people meat for a month? He's questioning how God is going to do this. And don't you love God's response in 1123? And the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. So God brought the quail. Boy, did he bring the quail. Numbers 11, 33 through 34. But while the meat was still between their teeth, Before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So he called the name of that place Kibroth Hadavah because they were buried. They buried the people who had yielded to craving. And it literally means that they were buried in the graves of their craving. I think that detail of before it was chewed is so telling. They received zero satisfaction from the meat. They didn't even bite down. I love the way Psalm 106 describes this very account, 14 through 15. It says, but they, the people, lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert, and he gave them their request, but... He sent leanness into their soul. He sent leanness into their soul. What a stark reality. That intense craving outside of God's provision left them empty in the worst way. So when God judges people, what does he do? He lets them have their own way. Romans 1, 22 and 28, professing to be wise, they became fools And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Don't we say that often these days, that we are living in a Romans 1 society? That God has given people over to their wicked lusts and that which is ungodly, and it's a judgment. He's giving the people what they want. So in Exodus 16, the Lord had warned Israel that the way they treated the daily manna would be a test of their obedience. So they knew about that. Would they follow his instructions? To reject God's provision, remember, is to reject him. And it's always a hard issue. That meat is a reflection of the people's discontent, which could be a lot of things kind of rolled into one. Maybe sore feet, or the sand, or the long stretches of time, or the weather. And isn't that true for us? Isn't that true for us? The heart is easily swayed toward all it doesn't have, instead of submitting to God's plan. And it's easy to 
Trust God's provision in one breath, and then if your circumstances change, sometimes that changes too. Or if you compare yourself to what other people have, maybe, and then you become dissatisfied. Here's a scripture for us. In that case, I love this from King David, Psalm 138.8. He says, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. So just rein in my thoughts and think, you know what? Whatever is going on, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me and just rest. And this incident is so poetically described in Psalm 78, 26. I'm going to read that. You should have it behind you here. He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought in the south wind. And also rained meat on them like the dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the seas. And he let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. So they ate and were filled, for he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving. But while their food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel In spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. What a stark description again. So the Lord promised that they would eat meat, that their prayers would be answered, but it would be a curse. And he answers the unbelieving desires of the faithless in this, when you think about it, to the larger extent The ultimate expression of this is eternal condemnation for those who die in their sins by rejecting the gospel as they pass into a lost eternity forever to be separated from the Lord, they receive the answer to their deepest desire, which is that God would be kept out of their lives so they could do their own thing. Their wish is granted in endless finality. Be sure that isn't true about you. Be sure your affections have gone from ungodly to godly upon salvation and that you desire to do the will of the one who saved your soul. So that's chapter 11 in complaining. Then we'll move into chapter 12 in complaining. So we go from complaining as a group to complaints among the leadership. And the two things that characterize the Israelites over and over in their complaining Leadership and food, leadership and food, leadership and food, over and over. That's what they complain about. Those are the relatable themes, though, for us. I mean, have we ever, you know, not walked onto the campus at one time and had a little grumbling about where all the donuts are? (laughs) Right? Or even in, you know, the songs that are picked by the worship leader. And I just did that on Sunday. I just did that. I walked into the fellowship group. And the screen went up for the songs, and I saw the first slide, and I said, oh, I don't like that song. Why does he always choose that song? need to learn my own material, ladies, <laughs> so it's good for me. So Numbers 12, 1 through 2, and by the way, I loved those, Logan. Beautiful, wonderful, no complaints. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. 
So Miriam is mentioned first, which means she likely is the instigator, and she is the one who God punishes. Maybe she felt threatened by Moses's wife. Don't really have too much information about that, but likely Zipporah had died and Moses had taken a new wife. And as long as Moses doesn't marry anybody from the Canaanite nation, that person is acceptable. So Cush usually refers to people who lived near Egypt, but she was really, what she was really kind of mad about was her position. The real issue was that growing jealousy of Moses's position and influence. And Aaron reveals the weakness of his flesh. This is the second time he has failed in this manner because he could not resist the clamoring of the Israelites in Exodus 32 with, you know, give us some sort of something to worship. And he came up with the golden calf and he's not resisting his sister either in this. So to speak against is hostile speech. It's speaking against, it's murmuring, and we'll see that throughout the wilderness period. But poor Moses, I mean, he's used to it from the congregation, but now it's coming from his own family with his brother and his sister. So here you have Miriam and Aaron, very arrogant, saying, well, God has spoken to us in the same way, so they say. Not true. And God clarifies that when he says, Moses is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face. And then in Deuteronomy 34, 10 and 11, it says, Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt. So he was the greatest Old Testament prophet whom the Lord knew intimately. And we know the story. The anger of the Lord was against Miriam and Aaron. God struck Miriam with leprosy. Moses interceded. Then God healed her. So again, in this chapter, keep in mind that God is affirming and confirming that Moses is the leader. That is still the man that he is using to lead the people. So in our first point, chapters 11 and 12, disobedience is reflected in complaining about God's provision, food, and leadership or authority. Why did we ever come out of Egypt, the people say in verse 20 of chapter 11? How about us? Remember, complaints about our circumstances ultimately are accusations against God. What about complaints regarding leadership in the church? Are you supportive of the pastors and elders whom God has chosen for that role? It's a good question to ponder. And I know they appreciate our support when we do. So next point, disobedience displayed in the faithless spies. And this will be chapter 13. So in 13, Moses sends one man from every tribe to spy out the land. Two of them are going to be great examples of faithfulness and courage, Joshua and Caleb. So what were they to find out? What was the land like? What were the people like? What were the cities like? Moses told them to be of good courage and bring back some fruit from the land. And they went on their journey, probably in midsummer, apparently it, it was. So on the map, on the PowerPoint, you see everyone is camped at Kadesh Barnea. Then the spies travel from there as far as Hamath. And verse 25 says they returned from spying out the land after 40 days, which is going to be an important number. 
The land they covered was about 500 miles. And I think I woke up in the middle of the night last night thinking about this number of 500 miles and how, how doable that was. I'm trying to do the math at 3 o'clock in the morning, and that's never a good idea. So how, you know, how, many, how long they traveled in a given day. But it didn't seem to be too much, maybe 13, 14 miles, something like that. So it was doable back then. So gathered the congregation. They showed them the fruit of the land, which was a cluster of grapes. You know that. That's between a pole carried between two people. It was so abundant. So look with me. We're going to read starting in verse 27. Thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are of great size. They... There also, we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in their own sight. So we were in their sight. Well, the, fer the fertility of Palestine was known even long before the Israelites were there. Flows with milk and honey, indeed. A similar description is found in an Egyptian text from an official who wrote of this area and said, it has figs and grapes, more wine than water, plentiful honey, abundant olives, every kind of fruit, and that milk was used in every kind of cooking. So it indeed, wow, sounds like a wonderful place to live. Archaeological evidence confirms Canaanite cities from this time were big and heavily defended. The city of Hazor contained an upper city of 26 acres and a lower city of 160 acres. Its defensive walls were massively constructed of stone and mud brick. Some of the walls measured 24 feet thick. Some estimate a city population of 40,000. That's just to say that there were real obstacles according to what they saw. But this is a perfect example of walking by sight and not by faith. One commentator points out the spies said, the land to which you sent us, the land through which we have gone, not the land the Lord our God is giving us. Or we were just in Hebron where Abraham and Isaac are buried, the place promised to us. So we hear not a trusting view, but a pessimistic one. We are not able, is the cry of unbelief in verse 31. Our God is able, is the affirmation of faith. So in Deuteronomy 9, Moses actually re reviews Israel's failure in this area, but he starts out this way in 1 through 3. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? 
Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. And that's very encouraging. But he was saying militarily, they were strong, extremely strong, these people. Moses's point being, from a human standpoint, it was a futile endeavor, but God would give them the victory. And it didn't matter, really, if they were two feet tall or 10 feet tall, because it's a matter of believing the promise given to them, rehearsing how God had already brought them through so many obstacles, and then communicating encouragement to the people. Caleb had the kind of faith to emulate. He said, we are able. He trusted God's promise. And I love this. Faith looks ahead with courage. Unbelief looks back with complaint. Faith unites the people of God. Unbelief looks for somebody to blame. And we know from Hebrews 1.1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And this is a most solid conviction. The true assurance of a future reality. Are you trusting God's promises in your own life? When you think your circumstances may be insurmountable, do you see a way through clinging to the promises of God? Do you believe 147, Psalm 147, 5, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. And do you communicate that with others? Do we give the best report possible on the greatness of our God? What kind of report are we giving, ladies, on the best, the best that God is, who he is, and what he, and what he can do? Or do we minimize his ability and question his intentions? Because fear is contagious, and we'll see that in our next point. Disobedience displayed in the rejection of God's plan. So this is chapter 14. I'm going to read Numbers 14, 1 through 4. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. <laughs> this is a spiritual tsunami. Why are almost two million people wailing? And not just whimpering, but wailing. And the Greek verb places emphasis upon the noise accompanying the crying. So one can only imagine what Moses and Joshua and Caleb were thinking, right, as they listened all night. So they complained against Moses and Aaron, and the word is murmur and grumbling. So murmur is simply to, to uh, grumble, and it's a sign of a rebellious heart. And that's how we have to think of it. And I love the way the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs puts it in regard to complaining. Will you rise in rebellion against the infinite God? Yet you have done so. When we murmur, we have done so. Charge your heart with this sin of rebellion. So take it that seriously is really the point. 
And we must always remember this, and I use this quote all the time because it's so applicable, and it's something that I ask myself. I'll start with, the heart is active. It isn't passive. It's where all of our motivations and our cravings and our desires are birthed from, and it's what Hebrews says in 4.12, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's our organ of worship. And so this is a quote from the book, Christ Formed in You. And I just think it's so uh, pinnacle. If I asked you who or what you worship, you'd be inclined to immediately say, Jesus Christ, and so would I. The author says this about worship. But here's how you know what you worship. You worship whatever controls you. What is the true north of your heart, the resting place for the needle of your subconscious thoughts and desires? What is the object of your affection? What causes you to lose your composure, your inward peace, your patience, your self-control? What are you bowing down to? What do you worship? And that could be like the Israelites. It could be food, tons of different reasons, leadership, circumstances you don't like, fear of what lies ahead, any or all of the combination. But the question is, how am I displaying a Holy Spirit-controlled life, and, or am I displaying one where my heart is constantly discontented and raging? Just like with our text, if you read Numbers 14, 1 through 4, you have, if only, if only, why you should have. So in our text, they accuse God of bringing their wives and children out to die. What a horrible accusation to bring against God, as though he had some diabolical plan instead of his wonderful plan of land seed blessing. But we can be guilty of the same when we ascribe wrong motives to the Lord and then assume the worst. What about thoughts like this? Because anytime we make these accusations, we're really in the end, because God is sovereign, blaming him. So, why did you let me marry him, Lord? I never knew it would turn out like this. Why did you let me move to this city? It's been a disaster. Why did you let my husband lose that job? Why did you even let me meet that guy? I liked him so much, but then he rejected me. Did I even have to meet him? It isn't because, as the Israelites said, he's putting you through the ringer for fun, right, to bring about a catastrophe. No, it's all weaving together for your good, for your good, for your good, for my good, for sanctification, and for glory. And probably on my top five favorite stories about how to put off complaining and put on praise, if you will, is Corey Ten Boom, right? You all know Corey Ten Boom. If you don't know Corey Ten Boom, you must read The Hiding Place. She and her sister Betsy were not Jews, but they were taken because they were hiding Jews. So they were caught by the Nazis and taken to a all-female concentration camp. And one of the, one great thing that I love is that Corey prayed that the guards would blind, that, that God would blind the eyes of the guards because she had a little Bible that she wanted to sneak in. And as God would have it, he did blind the guards' eyes. She's able to get the Bible in. But they were relegated to the worst barracks in the whole place. And 
they were filled with fleas and lice. And her sister Betsy, who was like an uber saint, said, oh, Corey, because I'd be totally Corey, not Betsy. Corey, Corey was complaining about the fleas, <laughs> right? Who wouldn't? And Betsy said, oh, no, Corey, we must not complain. We must thank God for the fleas. I mean, she had that sort of attitude. I don't, it's been a long time since I read it. I don't rem- remember. I don't think Corey totally comes around, but she knows she should. So she gets a little bit more on board with that. But they were able, morning and night, morning and night, morning and night, to do Bible studies with all of these Jewish women. Who knows how many women got saved from that time? And they always said to themselves, I wonder why the guards never come here. That's that's the reason they were able to do the Bible studies. They never come. They never show up. Why? Well, they did find out later the reason the guards never came is because they didn't want to get near that barracks with all the fleas and lice, right? So remember that story, especially the next time you go to the gas station to fill up your tank about being joyful and thanking God for the gas prices. Maybe somebody's going to get saved out of that. Who knows, right? So Joshua and Caleb told them the land was exceedingly good. They said, don't rebel against him. Don't rebel against God, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But this congregation would have none of this trusting God talk, so they thought the best idea would be to stone to stone them. <laughs> Let's just stone them and start over. But God intervenes and says in Numbers 14.11, Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I have performed among them. So God saw their unwillingness to enter as despising of him and a failure of faith. Real faith takes God at his word. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. One of my favorite verses ever. God is able. He has better things for us than craven fear and paralytic doubt. Sometimes we can be actually paralyzed by both those things a little bit. Fear and doubt can get a grip on us, but we must trust him. And I know that you are women of faith and you trust the Lord, but think about the definition of doubt. Sometimes if doubt means to consider questionable or unlikely or to hesitate to believe. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we hesitate to believe. It could be a fiery dart from the enemy, and we need to put up our shield of faith. And then sometimes we'll start to doubt God, and then we doubt his goodness, and we doubt his mercy, and that simmers below the surface. Sometimes it's even above the surface. And we, at times, I think, can have an attitude like the spies. And the apostles actually had a little bit of that in the beginning of their time with Jesus. Remember when the tempest arose on the Sea of Galilee? And remember when Jesus is with them asleep on the boat while the wind and the waves threaten to overturn them. And in Luke 8, 25, it says, but he, but Jesus said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they 
obey him. Where is your faith? How are you applying it to those tests that come along? Like illnesses, disappointment, more than usually difficult circumstances. Sometimes there are private troubles so difficult you cannot speak them. Sometimes there is just the pressure of the ordinary, only we seem to feel it more. We must exercise our faith daily, actively applying it to everything. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, do I show plainly and clearly that I belong to a higher realm and I can raise everything about me to that realm? Are all of my reactions different than the world's? Are all of my reactions different than the world? How do I react during a war? To illness, to pestilence and loss. Rise to the level of your faith. Be worthy of the high calling of Christ Jesus. It is a high calling. So in our next portion of scripture, we are still continuing in chapter 14. God offers to wipe out the people and make a new nation. For the second time in Numbers, he says this. So Moses intercedes again and tells God, but if you strike them, the Egyptians will think that you're unfaithful and unable to do what you promised. And he bases his arguments on God being glorified before the nations and that God's covenant, he had to make that happen for with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that needs to go forward, right? That's got to go forward. And he says, Lord, you are long-suffering, merciful, and forgiving. And because God is holy, we see this all throughout our stories here, because God is holy, he must punish sin, but because he is gracious and merciful, he forgives it. And you see that thread all the time through through the Pentateuch. And just to pull it forward, ladies, that truth is satisfied on the cross when you think of it this way. God upholds the law and he's true to his own character. At the same time, he offers forgiveness to sinners through Christ's atonement. So you see that come together perfectly at the cross. So in verse 19, God relents, and then this terrific scripture, this just popped out, and I took this huge breath of relief in verse 20, Numbers 14, 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. What a wonderful verse and a wonderful truth. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. But... The consequence is deep and wide. God says they put him to the test 10 times and not heeded his voice. And that's throughout Exodus and Numbers is what he's referring to there. They complain, they reject, they distrust, and they test him. Then God says the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. And the Israelites said, Why has the Lord brought us to this land to make our wives and children victims? But you saw this in your lesson too. But God turns that around and says he'll bring their children into the promised land, but the complaining parents would wander in the wilderness 40 years until they died. That's one year, 
for every day the spies were in Canaan, 40. God called them an evil congregation. And I just can't imagine Moses. Poor Moses, he's thinking, oh no, <laughs> I have to deal with these people for 40 more years. <laughs> so Psalm 78, 40. Listen to this one. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again, they tempted God. And listen to this, and pained the Holy One of Israel. Pained the Holy One of Israel. Except for Caleb and Joshua. They were spared because they believed and they were obedient. Verse 30, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. So, on the flip side of disobedience, the reward for obedience was great. Caleb was greatly rewarded, and so was Joshua. Don't you love what the Lord says to Joshua in Joshua 1.9? I'll bet a lot of you have that one memorized. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What blessed assurance he received. That is true and powerful for all the people of God. God said to Abram, tracking back all the way to Genesis 15, 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things. Jesus said, I have, lo, I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And then remember Jesus's very name means Emmanuel, God with us. Same God yesterday, today, and forever. Then the people said, okay, we've sinned. So let's make it right. We will go to the mountaintop and say, here we are. So Moses told them they would be defeated. He said, the Lord is not with you. But they presumed on God's grace and they went anyway. And we know what happened. They failed. And the Amalekites and the Canaanites drove them away. So they died in the wilderness without inheriting the blessing. Not so much for one specific act of disobedience or for fear of the battle that lay ahead, but rather for the simple fact of their unbelief. They failed to trust God. And the writer of Hebrews speaks of this in chapter 319 and says, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So... By way of review, you remember, maybe you don't remember. <laughs> I'm forgetting a lot these days, okay. So you remember in your outline note on the first lesson in Numbers, chapters 1 through 10, obedience. 1 through 10 was obedience. 11 through 25, disobedience. And then we'll end in 26 through 36 with renewed obedience. So we're going to have another week of this before things start to look up. But in spite of all their disobedience, God's faithfulness shines brightly in the backdrop of the Israelites' rebellion and unfaithfulness. And he will bring his children into the land of blessing, which he promised. That will happen. Hallelujah. And ladies, we have so many great stories to go. 
there are more plagues, and there are fiery serpents, and there are Balaam's prophecies, and there is the talking donkey. How can you not love the book of Numbers? God had and he has a good plan in all things. So in conclusion, remembering that we're studying the Pentateuch, the Torah, which means instruction. How is the scripture instructing us today in thinking through some of the application questions I posed regarding our own discontentment or murmuring heart? Though God shows us mercy every day and provides every day and gives us abundant life. I have a quote from Amy Carmichael. She says, if you are troubled and notice a complaining heart, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Hush, for the day is holy, and be not grieved. Is there anyone today who is tempted to be cast down or complain about anything? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Think of Niagara Falls. Think of all their white force. So only immeasurably greater is the joy of our God. Nothing less is our strength. Hush, for the day is holy. Hush to the thoughts that would depress us, for the day is holy. It is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it.